This is Marketing Smarts, a podcast committed to cutting through all the confusing marketing BS so you can actually understand how to take action and change your business today. Welcome to Marketing Smarts. I am Ann Candido. And I am April Martini. And today we're going to talk about the principles of successful B2B marketing. Okay, so this is a question we've been getting a lot lately, along with the pushback that it isn't the same as consumer marketing. And we'd argue that it actually is the same, but we do agree there are some caveats. So in this episode, we're going to attempt to break down the barriers while sharing those nuances in order to bridge the gap in conversation and help bring along our B2B folks at the same time. Yep. And as we often do, we're going to define what we're talking about here. So B2B or business to business, That marketing is selling products or services to another business or company versus to an end consumer. So in other words, it's about a business transaction versus a consumer transaction for personal use. But keep in mind, no matter where you enter in the funnel, there will eventually be a consumer at the end. And we're going to get to that later. Yes, exactly. So with that, let's jump into the four principles of successful B2B marketing. All right. Number one, get to know your customer intimately. And we've touched on this and we've talked about it in previous episodes, actually, too, the difference between a customer and a consumer. So in a B2B situation, it's the customer who then has an end consumer. So we're talking two audiences here. And again, in the B2B space, the term is customer. So that's what we're talking about with point number one. And we'll talk about the consumer in a few minutes. So too often we see a lot of demographic information when talking about the customer, but not a lot of psychographic. And the excuse has always been, well, it's business, so it doesn't need to have the human touch. And we would argue, really, it might be more important as a differentiator Mm -hmm. in this space because there is that old belief that you can have a customer but not really develop that human relationship with them. So let me give you an example, and we'll talk a lot of examples during this episode because we think it really helps contextual and lucky for all of you, I've worked a lot in the B2B space on the agency side. So I worked for um, a local financial company for many, many years, and it was um, in the insurance sector. So within the insurance sector, there is what is called an independent agent. And the independent agent is the person that sells you your insurance. So for example, for me, we buy our insurance through the Broerman agency, but our insurance carrier is Cincinnati Insurance. And so it gets to be a little bit tricky and it's kind of a space that people don't often understand intuitively. They don't really know that there's a difference between the type of insurance they have and and who that carrier is. So right off the bat, it's a bit of a complex situation. But in working with Cincinnati Insurance, the thing that was just so remarkable about them was that they worked so very hard to build the relationship with the independent agent that even though other insurance was being carried in their bag, so to speak, or their portfolio, more often than not, they were recommending Cincinnati. And when they weren't recommending Cincinnati, it was usually something about the coverage specifically, not about the company itself. And they did an amazing job of everything from treating them like part of the Cincinnati insurance family, including them in sales meetings. The incentives were obviously very good to sell them versus other, but it wasn't always the highest. And more often than not, they still saw that they were recommended very, very highly and frequently. And to the point that, again, given it's such a a, uh, complicated category, a lot of times the Cincinnati insurance name was just the same as the carrier itself. So for example, like I said, I have Cincinnati and I had an accident, a little... um, issue with my back gate, let's say, where I might or might not have ruined a couple of doors. It is tight. It is super tight. <laughs> See, I will give you that. It you is super tight. It makes me nervous every time I park back there. Yes. So, and I, I have learned since then, just side note, to park in the exact same space so that the turning radius is exactly the same every time. And just I like haven't a school had a bus. Yes, exactly. Just like a school mm-hmm. bus. So in any case, I didn't know that at first when we moved in. And then I, I forgot it again when we got a new car that was a little bit bigger. So we've had a couple of instances here. In any case, not the point of the conversation. 
question. I went to take my car into our usual provider on the west side that we always go to. And he was like, all right, what what insurance do we have? And I was like, Cincinnati. He's like, oh, Lisa. I know Lisa. No problem. You know, we work with her all the time. Lisa, by the way, does not work for Cincinnati Insurance. She works for the carrier itself. So just an instance there of how they become one because that relationship has been built so strongly. And on the Cincinnati side, it was just so remarkable. I mean, I got the inside look, right, because we were working with them, of course. But the hard work they did to really, really treat those carriers as human first to address different needs that came up based on perhaps different locations or really complex situations that would come up. There was never any finger pointing between the two companies. It was always just very much about we serve the independent model and we serve that agent so well that we have known what they're going to need, what they're going to expect, and therefore we become the recommendation over and over again. Yeah, I think that's a really good example. And it's a really great reminder that no matter how good we are at our jobs, we are all still in commoditized industries. Oh, absolutely. Right? And you gave a really good example of a industry where you may have multiple consumers that you are catering to. And and in a lot of industries, though, you may only have one mm-hmm. so, or one client that yes. you, have, you get to cater to, right? So you have to actually really think about how you're going to build that relationship because in that case, especially in a commoditized industry, the only thing you have is your relationship. Oh, absolutely. Right? It's, it's your key differentiating factor. It's the key way you're going to do business. It's a key way that you're going to build that emotional impact with that client that's then going to be able to transcend to the consumer. But if you're not intentionally thinking about that, then you are not going to be able to set your business up for success, especially in a B2B context. And especially if your client is only choosing one of you in order to be able to uh, fill whatever slot that they have. Yeah. And I guess that is a good point that, you know, I hadn't really thought about it that way, competing for one space. I mean, here they're all competing in the same situation. Mm -hmm. But either way, I think it is really hard because, like you said, it's a commodity regardless of which situation you're in. And you're fighting for that number one spot, whether there's multiple of you or only one selected at the end of the day. Yeah, which I think it's why it's so important to be in touch. You absolutely just have to be in touch. And I think that goes right to your first point, which is to get to know your customer intimately. And whether, you know, those elements of being in touch or more marketing based, like it may be in that more direct to consumer way or more in like industry basis, like industry events or Mm -hmm. speaking engagements or panel discussions or meetups, you got to be in touch. Yeah. And I mean, it was so important to them, really. And final comment, we'll move on to the next one. But uh, it was so important to them that when we were brought on as the agency, and even when we would bring new people on the team, they were put in touch with independent agents, just the same as the Cincinnati folks right from the beginning, because they felt like it was that important for us to also get to know the independent agents and to hear it from their mouth. Okay, so that leads us to point number two. And I mentioned that we were going to get into this. um, But this one is get to know your customer's consumer intimately. So again, that end person that your customer is serving is the consumer. Yeah, and I and I mentioned this in the in the lead in, which is no matter where you are in the funnel, eventually, there's going to be a consumer. So whether you're in the beginning, or the end, There's always going to be a consumer. And if you can't figure out the solution that your client's consumer needs, you're going to have a really hard time being able to frame up an offering that's differentiated that gets them to choose you. So you really need to consider not only what your client's needs are, but what your client's needs are in context of their consumer. That will help you stand out. That's going to make you more valuable to them. And that will be your differentiating factor. So Make sure that you definitely anticipate your customer's needs, both directly and in terms of their consumer. Make sure you're addressing pain points. There's always a tension. And that's how you develop that emotional impact and not the emotional impact like they're going to love you and all those sorts <laughs> of things. But maybe love you in a very like real business sense. But you want to be able to, to really tap into what you're going to deliver that's going to impact their lives in a positive way, either directly on some sort of tension they're facing or some sort of tension they're facing with their end consumer. And then really invest the time, like we said, to build a truly successful and authentic relationship. That is going to pay dividends. Like we said, that is going to be your your differentiating, kind of we call it like the brand love vehicles that's going to connect you with that client that's going to make them choose you and continue to choose you. So 
Very, very important. And I'm going to use an example of actually us. And I know you're going to use and um, continue the example of Cincinnati Insurance because I think that's a really good one. But let me just use an example about us, which is when me and April were trying to figure out how we are going to cater to our client's consumer, the one thing that we saw time and time and again was that businesses right now need flexibility mm-hmm. in terms of how they're doing work, especially marketing and branding work. And even though everybody in this podcast really, really grasps and, and understands how critical branding and marketing work is, not everybody does. So mm-hmm. um, surprising, I know, but they don't. And so what we realized is that we had to set up a structure that was not like a typical agency that um, allowed us to have that flexibility. And that's where the on-demand nature of the mm-hmm. business that um, we set up, which means that we don't have heavy overheads because we don't actually hire as full-time employees all of the people who do work for us. We contract them out. That allows us to bring them in when it's critical for the assignment and allows our clients to get really amazing work no matter what budgets they're giving us. They don't have to have big premier um, retainer budgets in order to get the A-team, which if you've heard us talk at all, that's kind of a typical agency (laughs) kind Mm -hmm. of behavior, right? So when COVID hit, that became even a bigger and more real necessity for in order to make sure that they were being mindful of their budgets and, and being able to fiscally prepare for the unknown. So it became a really great way that we could relate to our customers and our clients in a way that they could be able to still provide the best options, whether it's a service or a product for the consumer. Yeah, and I think that's a really great example um, in talking about just the ability to pivot. And I think if you truly know your customers well enough and you know their end consumer to the point of this one equally as well, you can anticipate those needs even in such a dire situation really like COVID where it was uncertain ground for all of us, including Anne and me from a business standpoint. Mm -hmm. But we were able to, one, just know our our clients and their customers well in the first place, but then be able to help them through it in a way that got end results, even though it wasn't the best financial situation. So I, I think that's a really good one to talk through. And and then as Anne said, you know, I'll continue on with the the CIC example or Cincinnati Insurance. Um, as I mentioned in the, in the previous one, the idea that the independent agent was perceived by me, by the end customer or my, you know, vendor to work for CIC. I think that the fact that they are so solid together allows for a more seamless experience for someone like me who's holding the insurance in in situations that are tough, right? I mean, at least I only hit the gate. I didn't necessarily you know, total my car or anything, but it's always one of those things that you don't want to have to deal with, right? And so I think for me, speaking from that side of being the end consumer, it was a relief that I at least had the coverage and then the agent that was going to make it as easy as possible for me because they were so ingrained in what the other did. And I didn't have to play a role where I'm going to my agent versus Cincinnati Insurance. You know, that all works and works really well. And so I end up happy with the experience and that whole, you know, the necessary evil of insurance that everyone talks about. That was a situation where, one, I was glad I had the coverage because it was several thousand dollars worth of damage that I didn't have to pay for. But then, too, the fact that I had a positive experience that now I'm talking about, right? And I understand, again, the work that goes into that, having worked for and on behalf of Cincinnati Insurance, but also just as as an end consumer, even not knowing that I would have been pleased. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, all right. Number three, always speak from the customer's point of view versus your own. And you go ahead and take this one, too. Yes. So this is always putting yourself in a position about what is best for your customer and their consumer, not necessarily what's best for you. And this goes hand in hand with knowing what your customer's needs are as well as their consumer's needs in order to be able to really create value creation that's so critically important for you to be able to sell your client, your customer on what you are going to provide for them that's going to make them want to to choose you. 
Now, the, the trick here, and we've seen this a lot in, in, in our, our clients ask us this question all the time, is like, how much time do I spend then promoting myself? Mm-hmm. Right. And it is a balance. Right. And especially if you're going in for a pitch or if you're going in for a networking conversation. And here's our, our rule of thumb on this is that you don't need to sell them, overly sell them on yourself. But you do need to communicate the three critical brand questions that we always say defines a brand, which is who am I? Why am I different? And why do you want me? And then articulate then in that why do you want me, that emotional impact you're going to have on their lives as a result of your involvement. That is what that value creation is. And that is what's so critically important to be able to clarify. You can do that pretty succinctly and pretty clearly without having to go on and on and on about yourself. Because at the end of the day, the customer cares about what's in it for them, not necessarily who you are and what you're bringing to the table until they can get, you know, that credibility uh, box checked for them. So ways to do this, okay? Um, In addition to keeping your pitch and who you are very tight and succinct and clear is use their terms and language instead of your own. And April will laugh at me because um, obviously I come from the P&G world and, you know, a lot of people say we have our own language. I don't laugh. I groan. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but you know what? I still to this day, after even being out for two and a half years, have to check with people and say, am I speaking English or am I speaking P&G? And actually, it's still like a 50-50. Um, Especially when she's talking to another png and then I just lose my mind. Yeah, that's always really fun. If you ever want to see that, then I, I think we should do a video on that. I think everybody would enjoy that. Um <laughs> But you also want to overtly speak to how you're addressing challenges or asks or issues that they have brought up. And this is another really critical point is that a lot of business will try to message track it back to what they want to say to their client. And there's a lot of places and a lot of times where that makes sense, but not when you're trying to develop that relationship that's going to get them to choose you. So answer their questions directly. And even if it's like, hey, we don't provide that service, but we know somebody who does, you can find a way to be a conduit. You can find a way to actually be able to um, be the one that connects it. And there's ways of being able to monetize that as well. So don't shy away from that. But um, if that is the option for helping to build that relationship, because your client is going to remember that or your potential client is going to remember that, hey, you know, they were so cool that they, you know, didn't oversell me, Mm -hmm. but I do now need something that they're going to sell and I'm going to go to them first because remember the relationship is so important and then go on a journey with them okay so this is about building a partnership and like i said before a partnership is relational not transactional so you need to be able to do give and take which means that you know you can't be so rigid on everything that you do how much everything costs how much time everything takes if you want to be able to be able to build that relationship you need to be thinking long term not just short term now you shouldn't hamstring your business in a in, in the process of doing that, unless, you know, maybe you're new and just starting out and you're going to choose to give away some work in order to build credibility and to be able to build case studies. In some cases, that works. But that still is about building credibility, reputation in order to build um, eventually into that long term client roster that you're you're seeking. Yes, I think those are all really important points. And, and I think speaking from the customer's point of view, I'm going to take a little bit of a step back with my examples on this one, still holding in in with the CIC example, but more from our role as the agency to our B2B client. So I think, well, I know that the old agency model used to be where you would go in and sell your specific process offerings, all the things that Ann just said not to do. And it was basically take it or leave it. We are fill in the blank, inner brand, land or wherever I was at that given time. This is how we do it. We're the experts. This is how you have to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the old agency model. That's <laughs> okay. Well, maybe it still exists some places. <laughs> how about this? The ones that have succeeded and continue to do a good job are the ones that have really embraced the point that we're making here. And when I joined Curiosity, one of the most refreshing things at that point in time was we had lots of long-lasting clients that were retainers. And I hadn't seen that in a while because, as I just said, I'd been working with some of these other folks. And and some of it had to do with the type of work. But but some of it was, you know, this is how we do it. This is what we do. 
do it with us or don't. And that was kind of what I was used to. So I was very intrigued when I got in there. And Cincinnati was my very first client. And what I had to learn most immediately was their language. This is high-level executives, right? They hadn't had marketing before. So everyone's involved because this is a thing they're unsure of. They were very sales-focused. They were doing extremely well, but they realized that they were behind in marketing. And so I'd have to go in and talk to the CEO or you know, my the head of marketing, who was my main client, be at a board with all of these super high-level folks. And if I used the term consumer instead of customer, that was a problem. Or if I didn't explain the independent agent model through the lens of how we wanted to do the marketing work properly, that was another ding. And I remember giving my very first presentation and we were really trying to help them take a step back and think about brand first versus just putting marketing out into the market, especially given that they're not they're going up against, in some cases, like the Geico's of the world, right, who are spending billions of dollars. We knew they didn't want to do that. We wanted to spend the money with intention. But when you're doing that, you have to really make sure that you have a solid brand. And so I went in to give my brand presentation from when I was at those previous agencies and they would stop me during the presentation and say, yes, but that's more in the in the CPG space or in the mm-hmm. consumer brand space. Here we talk about it like this. And so one, that kind of rocks my confidence, I will say, but I never made the mistake again. And I did my homework and worked really hard, almost like you study for a vocabulary test to make sure that I had all those terms down in the right way in order to have the credibility whenever I had to go speak in front of them the next time. And so that's what we mean when we talk about speaking their language. I mean, especially when you're in those retainer situations or you have long-term relationships, the expectation is that you understand their business sometimes better than you even understand your own because you're supposed to be at that table assisting with that on a regular basis. And if you can't get the fundamentals right, it's never going to work all the way through. And I would say the same thing is true. Um, We did some work for Drees and there the idea was the different types of homes that were needed across the country based on the terrain. So some houses not having basements or if there was flooding, how you built certain homes. I mean, all these little things that we had to learn because we were doing marketing, but then it quickly got into marketing based on region or location. And so they didn't want to have to retell us these things over and over and over again, right? They wanted us to be able to say, oh, okay, we're in Texas. Well, it looks like this. And the frustration would come out when we weren't picking up on that stuff fast enough. So I just can't emphasize enough the ability and the need really to get into your customer's frame of mind and then also quickly their business at every single level of that business. I just talked about terms, but we're also talking about sales goals and what their numbers look like and all of that. I mean, if you're really going to be the partner, like Ann mentioned in the previous, about really having that relationship, that's what it takes. Yeah, and just to build on that, if you're in more of an industry-based, um, you know, call it um, vendor services or something to that effect, um, it it's, it still applies, right? So it's oh, still yeah. about understanding whoever you're selling to's industry from their systems to their processes, whether those are manufacturing processes and systems or just the way that their company operates. So you can understand who you need to uh, talk to, who's the decision makers, because that's going to be critically important. We're going to talk about that later. But also you can understand then how what you're selling actually fits into whatever their system is. If you have to make them think too hard, they're going to go move on because they don't have time to really help you understand how you fit in. It is your job to make sure you understand how you're going to fit in. That becomes the uh, the opportunity that then also then leads to the emotional engagement that you can create as a result of being the solution for whatever their need is. So you, as you said, as you did, April, need to do your homework. You need to understand the industry. You need to talk to people. You need to kind of understand what processes and systems they have in place. You need to understand their business. You need to understand their lead times. And it does seem like a lot, but if you want the business, that's what you're going to have to do, especially if they're only choosing one. Again, mm-hmm. I mean, and that's uh, a, a really tough thing to have to uh, to um, time for and be able to plan for appropriately. Yes. Really good point. Okay, the fourth and final. Do not go so far as to sacrifice your own brand for that of your customer. 
So we just talked about all the things that we feel like are just foundational that you must have, that you must really focus on, the way to service in the B2B space, the way to make sure you know that end consumer just as much as you know your customer, all of those things. But this is a big one and one we have seen before. Yes, the old adage, the customer's always right, exists for a reason. But it stops when it's to the detriment of your brand. And this can happen in a lot of ways. It crosses a line for what you stand for or you're being asked to do things you aren't comfortable with. And, okay, yes, there's legal, regulatory, all of that stuff. But this is really about the integrity and the foundation of what your brand stands for. And you can certainly work with companies and brands that don't align exactly to you. But what you shouldn't do is work for companies and brands that go against what you stand for as a company. And there's a variety of reasons for this. It dilutes your message. It might even contradict it. Your brand really should be the foundation of all the decisions you're making. If you're making a decision to work with someone that goes against that, then you're violating your brand. And really, when you think about that end consumer, if you're not aligned with your customer and how they're doing business or what they stand for, all of those things, then you're not doing right by that end consumer either. So we say you have to hold true to who you are. You have to make sure that Not that you're in agreement, but that you can get on board with the approach and desire and their brand and all of the things that they want to do. And that at the end of the day, you can feel good about the relationship. We've talked a lot about relationships today. That relationship is only going to be authentic and true if you're both honest about what you stand for and in agreement with those things related to your brand. And so this is a big one. I mean, I've worked at plenty of agencies where we walked away from clients and plenty of agencies where we didn't. And I can tell you that everything fell apart and unraveled pretty quickly when we started taking on clients that we really didn't feel like were aligned, but we wanted to fill in the blank, get the shiny brand, Mm -hmm. make some money, have it, you know, as a case study example, win awards, stuff that's more surface level. And it really eroded a lot of the culture of the organization. It distracted from other clients. Um, It made people reluctant to work for us, quite honestly. It made people leave the company. Um, and, And at the end of the day, the work was never very good, I would say, because we were at odds with the client from the beginning. And so it's really important to make sure that you're preserving your brand, you're preserving the criteria by which you make those decisions, and you're taking on clients that you really feel good about and that are keeping true to who they are. And on the side of of another example, I've talked a lot about CIC. So I'll just mention here that The reward for them by being super selective and staying true to their brand is it's a highly, highly coveted thing. Like your independent agency has made it if they get to carry CIC. Mm. So that's really the caliber you want to be at. And it's because they didn't make any of those mistakes. They choose those agents based on the ones that are aligned to them. Another example is um, I've done some work for Meridian Bioscience and They're a company that has always been super humble and has always really tried to do the right thing, even if it wasn't quote unquote sexy. Um, So they are really just head down, get the work done, create the next thing, service our customers that way, make sure that there's really no BS. And they're a little quieter, I would say, as a brand, but everybody knows that when they put their products out, they're going to be good. And they're, again, going to really serve the end consumer, the patient in those hospital settings. To the contrary, they have competition in a company called Cepheid, who you go to the conferences, and and they're also highly credible, but totally different in their manifestation. They have the the biggest booth. They have the shiniest things. They even um, went to the the extent at one I was at where they had um, mannequins in their booth set up in different stations, which I have to say I found highly creepy. But they had them set up to kind of show the patient experience. And the booth was massive. I mean, just like four times anybody else's. And so I think um, they're another example, Meridian, not Cepheid, but of really doing a great job of staying true to who they are and doing the right work, even when there can be distractions by companies making more money or, you know, really going after being the first in the field, all of those types of things for the wrong reasons. So just a few examples there. 
Yeah, and you hit uh, on some of the hard points for sure, but I wanted to bring up a softer point because we talk about building that relational connection being so critically important, but there is a point too that you could be starting to be taken advantage of. Oh, yes. Right? And so that's also a hard stop. And you'll know when that's happening. And I I won't like call out a brand, but this did happen to me, especially early on in my consulting career, which I didn't set up an expectation with regards to what I was going to be providing and what is above and beyond, Mm -hmm. right? And this is going to be the same for a lot of you out there who are either solopreneurs or vendors of some sort who deal with a lot of customer service, right? So, um, you know, you have to be very, very protective of your time. Um, Your time is is your most important commodity, if you will, but it's, it's highly valuable. And when people are starting to take advantage of your time or you can sense that they're starting to try to get extra, even though they may not quite, you know, deserve it, you have to be able to put a, um, a, a the line down in the sand and say, okay, get that you need this. This is now going to cost incremental money because it's going to take incremental time. But you can do yourself a whole lot of good by making sure that you're clear about what your services are that you're offering, what you're providing in the in the upfront. That doesn't detract from the relationship. This is not necessarily a handshake and, you know, we're going to go out and grab a couple of beards and I'm going to be there and you're going to be there. I mean, you have to still set up the rigor that makes sure that what things are going over that line, that you can explicitly go back to that and make sure that you have some sort of course um, or recourse, if you will, in order to be able to ask for more money, scope additional work and, and those sorts of things so you don't get taken advantage of. Yeah, I, I think that's you're exactly right. I totally missed that one. But yes, for all of those reasons. Um, and I think when I gave my agency examples, that was a big one too, right? Pushing the team too far, taking everything they can get, not appreciating yep. our time, treating us like a commodity, not valuing the creative thought process. I mean, all of those things. And, and at the end of the day, it, it's all of that that leaves a bad taste. But yes, anything you can do to prevent yourself from being in that situation, I think is huge. Yeah, and just remember, people are going to take everything that you give them. You can't rely on them to draw that line in the sand. And nobody's going to say, oh, well, maybe I'm going and pushing it too far. They're going to continue to push to see what they can get. They're just like teenagers. Oh, geez. Okay. With that, we will go on to... You'll see. I'm telling you. I don't have any yet, so I can't speak to that. Are you craving a deeper dive immersion into the topics on our podcast? Then you will appreciate our virtual consultancy. Located on the shop page of our website, forthright-people.com, you can now download our digital coaching modules on vigilant leadership, culture building, and social strategy. For the cost of a book, you will get diagnostic tools and exercises to assess your current state and development tools to quickly and intentionally improve your proficiency. These are quick yet effective ways to improve your marketing savvy today. Check it out and let us know other topics you would like us to go deep on. All right, on to our next segment, In the Trenches. For all of you out there listening, you know we give real-world examples that might be specific to industries and situations, but with broad enough application so that anyone listening can digest, put into action, and change your business today. So first one, is there ever a place where you serve both B2B and B2C, and how do you handle that? The short answer here is yes. There are actually lots and lots of examples of this. So think about real estate, commercial versus residential, and Anne can talk to this far better than mm-hmm. I can. Um, or I used to work on Rotorooter. They're commercial and residential from plumbing services. It can get tricky, but I think you have to clearly, again, know the customer versus the consumer. This is an instance where you don't want to address their needs the same way, but you still want to use the same brand foundation. So Mm -hmm. all of the things we just talked about with that last one on knowing who you are, standing firm to that, all of that applies. But if you layer on the idea of speaking their language and their needs, there are differences in the messaging and what you say in those instances, right? I mean, think about that plumbing example. I mean, if your toilet overflows in your home, that's catastrophic. If that happens in a commercial building, not as big of a deal, right? So you want to think about, okay, in the commercial space, what's going to be that bigger thing? You know, a pipe bursts on the top floor and it goes all the way through Mm -hmm. all the floors, right? So there's all different instances. Plus, when you get into the 
different types of things, services you offer. All of those things require really clear messaging, again, with what the customer or the consumer is going to expect. And we've worked with plenty of people that even go as far as to have different marketing plans for those audiences, right? Because the touch points are fundamentally different. If you're talking B2B, you might want to be in industry publications, right? Versus when you're talking to consumers, you want to be in consumer publications or on Facebook or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so you're choosing different messaging, you're choosing different channel strategies. um, And really, you want to make sure, again, that you're servicing each of their needs in the way that they want to be spoken to and addressed differently from each other. Now, one thing that I will say is a caveat, which also I've had this issue with clients, is make sure that you're not getting into a competitive situation with your customer and who you're serving as the end consumer. So let me give an example of what this could potentially look like, all right? So I did some work with Don Foods, and they create bakery goods, and they do it in three pillars. So they provide ingredients, or they provide partially finished goods, like a cake that hasn't been iced yet, or they provide finished goods, like that whole cake. And they sell those to companies like Starbucks or Mm -hmm. Panera. And so their brand, historically, when we got into this situation, had never been at the forefront of any of those companies. They just served the companies and they sold to them. It was only purely a B2B situation, but they got an opportunity to start going into grocery where you're dealing with an end consumer, right? And they're shopping the store. And this was like when digitally things really started to shift and they're starting to blur a little bit between um, customer and consumer and where people were experiencing things. And their brand was starting to get some traction and people were starting to know a little more about where where they were and who they were and and what they stood for. And so all these signs led to, we think we should have a consumer-facing brand. But when we built that strategy, we had to be really careful that where we were putting the Don brand out there, we weren't making our clients mad. So let me use the example of, okay, there's a Starbucks inside a grocery store and Don Foods is selling their finished goods, but Starbucks is using their goods and selling them Mm -hmm. against their brand, right? So that's a competitive situation. The bakeries typically sit right by the Starbucks in a lot of grocery stores. Do you think Starbucks is going to be happy? And that's one of the biggest contracts. So um, I would say it's possible. It happens in a lot of ways. A lot of times it's just very transparent and you treat them differently, but just make sure that if your customers are in the space you're entering into, that it doesn't become a negative competitive situation. Yeah, and I think you raise a very good point about the fact that it's actually different businesses. Even if you're selling exactly the same thing, they're actually different businesses and need to be treated as such, all right? So A lot of times we will suggest that you have different marketing strategies, different platforms in order to clearly differentiate. Some people try to consolidate that all in one, um, feeling that the name is carrying weight. In some cases, that is it is the case. But even if you're consolidating all in one marketing effort, you have to be very clear what the commercial side is versus residential side. Mm -hmm. So um, going back to the the real estate example, this is super critical in real estate. Now you have your, you know, Using your insurance folks, you have the financiers, you have the realtors, you have the inspectors, you have a lot of these people do span over residential and commercial. But the commercial folks speak a very different language and have very different needs than the residential folks. If you don't understand those and you're not positioning yourself in a way to relate to that customer, then you are not going to be able to stand out because they are looking for very specific things. Even if the thing that you're providing, whether it's like helping to find properties, providing insurance, (laughs) inspections, even if that thing is the same, the way that you position it has to be different in order to appeal to that right clientele, whether it's your customer on the commercial side or the direct-to-consumer on the residential side. Yes, exactly. And and I think, yeah, the, the, the real estate one, I think for anybody that's having trouble kind of getting their head around this, that's one that I think is easy to go and investigate and look for examples. Because like Ann just said, you can, you can get down into the details of the different services that are being provided. And you can see just in the way that they write up the offerings or talk about the different inspections you need, all of that stuff, you can see sort of apples to apples what the differences look like. 
Well, that's interesting you say that because I would say um, there's some people who are really good at it and some people who are not so good at it. So, well, that's that's a different topic for a different day because yeah, that's sure. that space in general. But yeah. in any case, <laughs> okay. Number two, what do I do if my brand and what I stand for gets out of line with what the customer wants? Yeah, and we talked about that a lot and um, already. So I'm just going to hit on um, a couple of key points here. Um, the one thing is just making sure from the beginning that this is somebody you want to go in business with. As we've talked about before, good partnerships, which is the way you should be thinking about any client that you bring on, is it requires there to be something in common with them. Either there's a common philosophy, there's common values, there's a common goal, there's a common mission. There has to be something in common. You can at least start from that focus point of saying, okay, there's something that joins us that, that makes sense. If you start there, then the chances of it kind of going off the rails lessens. It doesn't mean it won't. But you also need to then, um, as soon as something happens here, you have to recognize that. A lot of times we'll kind of go down the tracks a little bit and just kind of wait, hoping things will turn out differently or we're waiting for the right moment to intersect. But really, as soon as something happens in um, from that standpoint, you really need to be firm um, and be respectful to yourself and your customer and make a statement about it, especially if you have already solidified the fact of, that you are partnering or that you got into this relationship based on a certain goal, mission, philosophy. It's very much easier to kind of reflect back on that and say, hey, it's kind of violating why we went into business to begin with. And so this is making me feel very uncomfortable. But then you also need to be very proactive in your in your business specifically and making sure you have a playbook that gives you a process for how to do this. So when that happens, you're not just like, um, now what do I do? And then you're trying to scramble, try to figure out what's the right way to engage. Just like your brand or a brand has guidelines for how you use the brand, like, for example, how you use a logo, what colors do you use, you know, how do you, um, what's your, how's your tagline show up, all those things, you have to have those for your business to make sure that if there's something in violation, you know what that looks like, and then you know how to, how to address it. And then you need to have a really honest conversation about if there's a way to rectify this with your customer. Um, you know, hopefully they're, they're open to it, and then you can have the conversation, but at the end of the day, if they're not, you have to be willing to walk away. And that's a really, really hard thing to do. But it's just not worth ruining your business's reputation and credibility for a short-term money need. Um, and I know that's really easy for us to say sitting here in the room, but we've had to go through it ourselves where we've had to be like, mm, this just isn't going well for us. This is not coinciding with what we went into business for. And we're going to have to move on because we're thinking about the long-term growth and, and development of our business, not just the short term. Yes. And I think all those points, I mean, have those written down somewhere. I mean, make it sort of like a Bible, if you will, because again, coming from the agency space, this situation, a bad situation with a customer really becomes a cancer and grows very, very rapidly if you do not take care of it and nip it in the bud immediately. And one of the things that we always used to talk about was just because they are your customer does not mean that they get to dictate and, though, it's the agency's responsibility to train them in the way you want the relationship to go. So it's a relationship. It's a partnership, as Anne said. It's a two-sided thing. So everything from when you're willing to answer the phone, mm -hmm. how to communicate with each other. I know um, texting has become a huge thing and has blurred a lot of the lines, but I've had some conversations with people recently where they're like, I'm getting 35 texts a day and I can't even keep up with those, let alone the work. You know, you want to make sure that you have this really buttoned up and ready to go, but that you also are constantly revisiting and examining and making sure that the relationship is what you want just as much as what your customer is looking for. Mm -hmm. Okay, number three, how visible should my brand be to the end consumer versus my customer's brand? So I talked a little bit about this before with the Don Foods brand. I'm going to give my very favorite answer here, which is it depends. <laughs> because there are a lot of variables depending on industry offerings, customer brand needs, consumer relationships to the, to the customer that's providing the service for them. There's lots of different situations that can happen. So here is what we would say just at a high level. If 
the strength of the brand on either side is of benefit to the other to be visible. So again, in that CIC example of it being a coveted brand to have in your bag on the independent agent side, that's something that they would want to tout, right? They want to overtly say, we carry Cincinnati insurance. And so that would be an example of where credibility is built for the customer's brand by that halo effect of Cincinnati insurance, okay? So that would be an example of where you would want to have that stronger presence or be that stronger presence on behalf of your customer. An example that can get pretty sticky is one that Ann and I have had to grapple with since Mm -hmm. starting our our own company and really thinking about what we wanted and what we didn't want. So to her previous point of when you're starting out, you make some choices and as you get going, you make different ones. Another thing that happens is what we call white labeling. And so this is situations where you go under someone else's brand almost as an employee or a partner or whatever, but you're spoken of as though you're part of that company, right? So when Ann and I first got together, I had several of these relationships, quite honestly, where I was an independent. Um, I would be happy to work on behalf and with, you know, former coworkers or for clients that I had before. In fact, I, I really enjoyed that aspect of my business. But when Ann and I decided to make a go with forthright people, we decided we weren't going to do that white labeling anymore. We weren't going to say, you know, I'm marketing director of XYZ company. No, we're working with forthright people who are the experts in this space, and it has to be overt that way now. Um, Again, if you're getting started or you enjoy doing that or you want to be behind the scenes, that's okay to white label. Uh, All those uh, things we talked about before apply of making sure you're partnering with the right people in doing that. But then there are times that you come to, and I really think this happens as brands and businesses mature, where that has to go away in order to make sure that your brand can stand on its own is strong enough. And it's very clear to people that that is who you are as a company. And the final thing is just work with your client at the onset and then, you know, make sure that you have ongoing conversations or even situational conversations as they come up to make sure that you're aligned. It's not to say that that visibility can't and shouldn't change. There are definitely reasons that we've talked about all across this episode where it happens, but it's all about communication at the end of the day. And so just make sure that you are aligned and that you both understand each other's point of view and have conversations as things become different. Yeah, I think the question I always ask in this situation is, what is the brand? Mm -hmm. So is the brand the person or the people, or is the brand the actual product or service that you're selling? Um, Because it it makes a big difference. So for example, I was just talking to um, someone a couple of months ago who is developing a training regimen, right? And this is a a business training regimen, if you will. And he wasn't sure what kind of marketing that he wanted to go do or what he should do in order to promote it. And I said, well, it depends. I said, is it the the training module, is that the brand or are you the brand? Mm-hmm. And that means, do you want to sell this thing and you're going to license out this thing and you don't care who else is, well, you care who's using it, but you don't care that your name is attached with it? Or do you want to become known as being the person who created this? So if you think about all of the ways that people develop the training, there's, there's, you know, there's some people who um, are very much tied to it, like Covey, for example, like everybody knows about his training, mm-hmm. you know, but, you know, his, the training still stands on its own as well. But he wanted to make that, that sure that that was synonymous with his name. So that is the decision that you really have to make when you're deciding whether or not you're going to white label your services or not. Um, But eventually, if you want to do additional business and you need to publicize your company in order to go do it, you have to still figure out how you're going to market behind your company and your business in order to be able to attract more consumers and more clients and being able then to deliver whatever your service is or whatever your product is to the right people. So I agree with you that it generally kind of switches or at least it becomes blended. Um, But the first question you should ask is, what is the brand? Yes, absolutely. Usually that's the the statement I make. So I know. There you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Number four, are there things that we can take from B2C and apply in B2B? So remember where we started with this conversation. We said we don't really believe in the argument that B2B is totally different. We've talked about all the nuances that exist and some tips and tricks we've learned over the years. 
So our answer to this is, of course, there are things you can take from B2C and apply in B2B. There used to be this wall up. The B2B was too different. We talked about that as the, the onset of this whole discussion. We don't believe it's true. And especially with everything that has happened in the digital space, you know, consumers becoming savvier, consumers becoming more demanding, the blend of you being a customer and a consumer at the same time. I mean, shoot, just look at the work environment we've all been in in the past year. We've had to trade those hats like at a moment's notice, right? And then also think about the fact that your customer may be a consumer at the exact same time. So I always use the example of I might be reading a business article or researching some brands for this podcast, right? I have my business hat on, but those running shoes that I was looking for the other night and haven't yet purchased pop up as an ad, right? And so the space is very connected now. um, And you have those experiences all of the time. And then I would say because historically B2B lags or puts, you know, digs their heels in the ground and says that they're different and they're not going to follow B2C, it can be a really interesting way to stand out. So if you are willing to go that direction to really dig into um, consumer brands. We always say, think of some that you really, really love. Dip your toe in. Think about things that they do great that energize you. And then think about how you could apply that in business, right? And it's not always a direct application, but there are ways and things you can learn. And it really helps you to push the needle because consumer brands are the ones that have been doing it all this time, right? And so they're all the way out here and you can't see I'm, you know, reaching way out on the horizon. <laughs> um, and no matter where you are in your beliefs or your B2B journey or, you know, any of those things, there's tons of stuff that can be taken away. And whether you want to take some close in stuff and be a little safer or push really far out, there's opportunities for all of that. So we would say absolutely, again, there are things that can be borrowed and you should be borrowing them and consuming things at the very least through that consumer lens so that you can know what's out there and understand and really gain a a full overview of what's happened in B2B versus B2C. Yeah. And and this is where we get a a question a lot and I'll put it in my first person, which is, Benan, I only sell fill in the blank like there's like you love this one yeah so i'm like there's nothing sexy about it there's nothing like you know it's not like nike where everybody covets you know it and wants it and stuff and i'm like you know listen nike at its essence is a pair of shoes mm-hmm. i'm like they have developed a brand around it to make it something exciting that that, that consumers coveted this is the same way you need to think about your business, especially in a B2B context. Because if your widget or your service isn't sexy, then how you sell it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, again, where you need to concentrate then on is like, how do you be that company or that vendor or um, that B2B partner that your client needs? And it's going to be in the way that you are able to relate to them in a human relational way. Yes. Well said. Absolutely. A little bit on the soapbox there, but I like it. Yeah, well, you know, that's my soapbox because I worked at Tide. (laughs) Okay. Fifth and final. Yeah, okay. It's funny. A soapbox, yeah. I was not going to acknowledge it, but you made me, so. (laughs) Well, hysterical. I know. Okay. Number five, moving right along. Unlike in the D2C world, direct-to-consumer world, generally a business selects only one B2B partner. How do I go about winning business if there's someone already there, and Anne, I know you love this one, you developed this one, so take it away. Yeah, and I, it's because I've gotten this question several times, actually, in the last month. And the thing that I say is is always the same, it's very consistent, is you have to become a thought leader in the industry. Um, I, You're going to love I, I always use this example, too, which is of Apple. And, you know, a lot of people think Apple is a direct-to-consumer brand, and it, it, it is to some extent. But if you guys are thinking that introducing three cameras on the iPhone versus one camera on the iPhone is just for consumer benefit, it absolutely is not. It's for the benefit of all their B2B and commercial clients, the benefit of all their stakeholders, the benefit of all their partners to show them, hey, we are leading technology here. Mm. So we are the ones who are always coming up with what's cool and what's next. Take notice of us. That's how you become a leader in the industry. So you need to think about what your, uh, the credible spaces that you're going to develop that you have knowledge about that is going to be of value in the industry. And then you need to start owning that space. 
Then you want to show where your customer is seeking out the information about the industry. What industry events are they attending? What publications are they reading? What podcasts are they listening to? Who are they following as mentors and coaches? And then find ways to be able to integrate into those ways that they're getting their information in a highly relevant way that's providing them value. And as April just said, consider the crossover to where you can engage them in life. For example, if you're a landscaping company and you're looking to get more commercial clients, you may want to target your efforts on marketing to residential neighborhoods where the decision makers live. That doesn't necessarily mean you become a residential landscaping company if you're more commercial, but knowing where the decision makers live, you can start marketing your company to those people in a way that they might be receptive. Another example is Accenture. So they've traditionally sponsored a golf tournament. They've done this for a very long time. And I think there's been a couple of years that they've taken off. But they have identified that as a point of personal engagement for their target customer. So they know that the people that they're working with generally in a B2B fashion love golf, watch golf, um, play golf. And they're engaging them there because they know that that's where they're going to be. So once you kind of understand where those crossovers are, where those engagement points are, then you can develop marketing materials of value. This could be content, training programs, newsletters, consultations. These aren't shots keys. These aren't putting your name on a pen and handing them out. <laughs> These, I mean, I mean, I guess a pen is a value, but really a pen is a pen. It's it's creating something that your consu- your customer is going to uh, remember you by and is going to associate you with, and that's going to keep you top of mind. So that is going to be critically important to being able to build your credibility and your reputation in the industry. And you want to make sure, again, you do your homework and really find out who the decision makers are. It's not necessarily the people at the top. And that is one of the most important things to really understand. For example, if you're that landscaping company, this is not the CEOs you're targeting necessarily. It's the people in operations who are developing and and, and vetting their vendors for doing these sorts of things. So make sure you find out who these are. You can do it through LinkedIn is a really good way, through the industry events. Be clever and be connected in trying to vet out those and find those right people. Don't just settle for, hey, I'm just going to go for the CEOs and hope it gets down to them. Yeah. And I would just want to make a fine point to the point of tchotchkes, which really is one of my most hated words in, in all of the English language because I used to have to make these all the time and I couldn't stand oh, it. I know. And, you know, there's just they're expensive too. Yes, they get very, very pricey, and really, they end up in the trash can. Yeah, and, and, and who's going to wear a shirt with your logo on it? Really, at the end of the day, exactly. I mean, totally, seriously. totally feel that. But I think the point about that is a couple things that Anne said: being authentic to who you are and showing where you add value. Chachkis do not do that. And I'm just Mm -hmm. using them as a vehicle right now. But it's really, really important that if you're going to go and try to take over that single spot, the thing that, you know, Apple has always done well, well, they've had some issues. But let's just say in general, (laughs) what they've done well is stay true to who they are and then stay in line with that when they are adding value or additional products or whatever. And that cool factor has always been part of them. But the creative space has always been part of them, too. Mm -hmm. And so... They do it in a way that's shiny and new, but that's because that's part of their brand equity. So I just think, again, this is a place where you have to really think about your brand and what you offer that's unique and different. That whole why would you want me thing really comes into play here. Mm -hmm. Okay, third and final segment. Typically, we do a real world example of a brand who's doing things well or not so well. In this case, first of all, we've given you tons of examples and some insight into companies and brands we've worked with. But also, we haven't touched on as much of the big no-nos. And as you know, we like to say what not to do, like in our episode of networking where we say don't get drunk and overshare, right? (laughs) This is in a similar vein right here. And so I'm going to tick these off pretty quickly because they should be pretty straightforward. But these are the things in the B2B space that you just should not be doing. Number one, and this is probably the biggest one, cold email, cold call, cold LinkedIn, and ask for connection, and then immediately pitch a service that actually you already do for your business. Ann and I get this all of the time. It drives us crazy. Lately, we've been getting people pitching to be on the podcast that are competitors. I went through a whole list yesterday of those. It just, it doesn't make any sense if you're not going to do the homework, if you're not going to listen to the podcast first, if you're not going to dig around on our website, if you're not going to see what services we offer. We're already skeptical of cold calling, emailing, et cetera. Definitely don't do it if you're in the same space. Just do a little bit of a homework and make sure before you reach out. 
The second thing is bait and switch by saying you want the business's help, but then pitching your own business closely aligned to the one just before, right? Don't reach out and say, are you taking on business? And if I say yes, don't come back and say, oh, great. Well, I have these services to offer and I would like to pitch you clients or do your video work or fill in the blank. Nothing is going to infuriate us more quickly. The next one, incessant robo emails that feel like spam. Self-explanatory. Don't send me six messages. This week I've had the same person reach out eight times and we are on what day of the week? Tuesday. Yeah, my favorites when they lead in, well, your inbox must be very full. You must be very busy. And let me just send you another email to put yeah. this at the top of your, I'm like, oh my Lord. Yeah, my email is full because of people like you and I don't even really read my emails anymore as a result. Anyway, moving on. High pressure promos. Do not be forceful to the point of understanding. We've talked about the customer and their end consumer. This is the opposite of that. Don't be pushy. Don't push your services on them. And definitely don't do it in a way that feels like I have to make the decision right now or I'm at a loss. People are just going to opt out because they're going to be frustrated that they don't have the time to think about it. Not following up after someone responds. This one really leaves us scratching our heads. If someone reaches out and asks for something or responds to your request to meet with them, work with them, whatever, do not just radio silence and, and, you know, go blank. Because guess what? They're going to talk about that. We had a recent situation with that, and I'm not going to throw the person under the bus. But where, you know, we wanted them to do some work for us on the marketing side, and we never got a proposal back. So guess what? We moved on to someone else. All right. Mm -hmm. Aggressive communication in general. I threw this one in here because I just have to reiterate the point. Just do not be aggressive. People do not respond to that. It is a negative situation you're placing them in. And then finally, not showing people what's in it for them. Again, going back to the consumer-customer language, putting yourself in their shoes. Make sure, especially if you're trying to sell something or get in that number one spot from a B2B perspective or whatever it is, that you don't just talk about yourself all day long. You quickly, quickly get into what is in it for them and how you've been thoughtful about why they should want to work with you. All right. That's everything we have for you today. Um, reminder that we have worksheets for all of our episodes. So I just went through a whole list there. We've had several mini lists throughout this entire segment. So check out our site for our worksheet. And with that, we will say, go and exercise your marketing smarts. Still need help in growing your marketing smarts? Contact us through our website, forthright-people.com. Mention you heard about us here and we will give you a free 30-minute consultation. You can also share any topics you want us to cover which helps us give real-world support to our listeners in real time. And if you learned something impactful, please share with a friend and don't forget to leave a rating and review on your favorite platform. Now, go show off your marketing smarts.